Well, a, a couple of weeks ago, as we were heading into the fourth quarter of the year, a couple of our pastors and I covenanted, covenanted, is that a word? covenanted together to try and finish out the fourth quarter of the year as strong as we possibly could. And so we got together and kind of made a pact. We said, hey, over the last three months of 2021, uh, let's challenge each other. So we're going to read three books over the next three months. Uh, we're going to memorize 12 verses over the last 12 weeks of the year. We're going to read through the New Testament together. So that's not a crazy pace. It's totally achievable. But we also committed uh, to a three-month fast from social media. So no social media, no Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram, nothing like that at all. And uh, so someone's considering that right now. Lastly, uh, we set some fitness goals, pretty ambitious uh, ones. And so, um, but here's the reality. What I found out is this. Everybody can make ambitious plans, right? You can have all kinds of ambitious plans, but the great prophet and theologian, Mike Tyson, has a saying uh, that he's famous for. And here's what Mike Tyson said. He said, in boxing, everyone has a game plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so, uh, for me, I had a great fitness game plan until I drove by Skyline this week. And I got punched in the face by a Coney in a four-way, and I didn't hate it. All right, I'm just sharing that. So today, we're kind of capping off Missions Week, and we think about living missionally. I think it's kind of the same way. We, we plan to do it. We want to do it. We want that to be a natural part of our life. But the reality is, when it comes to missional living, sometimes we have a great plan, but that plan never gets legs under it. It ends up in the realm and dies in the realm of good intentions. And so this year, as we uh, planned out Missions Week, our goal was to say, hey, let's put more opportunities for people to grab a hold of missions and do some things instead of just talking and preaching about missions. And so you've had an opportunity to support a local pregnancy center with your donations. And so at every campus, those who have been coming in, we're grateful for that. Uh, last night, every one of our campuses uh, had a movie night. And at every single campus, there were multiple families from the community that showed up. And so we're grateful for that. Uh, last, we challenged you to uh, commit to praying for some of our community leaders, and lots and lots of people have taken that challenge on for us. We've challenged you to set your watch, your alarm, your phone, whatever, for 10.02 every day and pray that God would send workers into the harvest. And so there's been lots of uh, opportunities to do that. This uh, morning as you leave today, you're going to have another opportunity to grab a practical tool so you can live missionally in your own neighborhood, so you're going to have the resources when you leave today. And so I'm truly expecting God to use all of these collective efforts so that we can more intentionally live on mission instead of just talking about, preaching about, and educating ourselves about missions, and don't let it be simply a good intention. Now, why is it uh, that we, when we talk about missions, that oftentimes, or anything in the Christian life that's not comfortable for us, that many times it dies in the realm of good intentions. Why is it? Where is the tension between this is what I should be doing and this is what my actual life looks like? Well, the tension between those two is the cost of obedience. Obedience is always costly, and that's the tension between these two things. And so this morning, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 as we continue our series through the book of Acts titled The Movement. Uh, and we're going to look at um, Acts chapter 4 and a little bit in chapter 5. Uh, today and the reason that obedience is costly this is why is because obedience is always an endeavor in self-denial and I don't know about you but but I'm not a big fan of self-denial are, are you like I like self-indulgence right and so self-denial runs countercultural to what uh, culture says but also to what my own sinful heart gravitates towards now I know it's early in the message 
right? But if you're listening, say amen. The call to follow Christ is not a path of self-improvement. It is a path of self-denial. Let me repeat that. It's really important. The call to follow Christ is not a path of self-improvement. It is the path of self-denial. The Bible says this clearly. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's repeated again in Mark chapter 9, verse 34, parallel passage. And so while self-denial is a part of following Jesus and advancing the movement, it's not something that's incredibly popular in culture or by the world's standards. So self-denial is yet another place in the Bible where following Jesus Christ will call you to live counter-cultural and even against the motives of your own heart. And so we look at this in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. Uh, We're going to pick up the narrative from last week of Peter and John, who were basically arrested, but, but eventually uh, released from preaching that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Remember in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said, hey, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And they said, uh, just stop saying that, right? Just, just, we, we're not going to do bad things, but just stop saying that. Well, that began to progress as we pick up the story. And what we find out in this passage, what we find out in our own lives, is that obedience is going to cost us something, all right? So, uh, let's pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So we're going to start today, and we'll jump into chapter 5 a little bit as well. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 37 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each as any had need. Uh, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Last week we saw that Peter and John are arrested and questioned and then let go. And so as we pick up the narrative today, uh, they're preaching Christ. And so what we're going to find out, and particularly in chapter 5, is that once again, they're arrested, they're questioned, this time they're beaten, and then finally let go again. And Peter uh, later said, would write this, he said, hey, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He said, there's a cost to following Christ, and obedience is always going to cost you something. Why? Persecution absolutely looks different in different seasons of church history and in different parts of the world. Uh, the reality is obedience will always be costly. And so as we continue the narrative here in Acts 4 and Acts chapter 5, I want to highlight two things uh, that may be, uh, obedience may cost you, all right? Uh, number one is this, obedience will cost you your possessions. Obedience will cost you your possessions. Now, we're going to spend the majority of the time here because th- this is true of every follower of Jesus Christ, and we get the second thing that obedience may cost you. It's a little more situational and contextual, uh, depending on where you're at in the world and what part of church history you are, those kinds of things. But here's the reality. In Acts chapter 4, what he's saying is, hey, <clears throat> one of the things, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to live open-handedly. 
Now, some people read Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and they've looked at this distribution of goods, and they said, hey, here's a biblical case for socialism. You should write this in the side of your notes of your Bible. This section of Scripture is a Bernie Sanders' favorite chapter in the Bible. Did you know that? A little political humor, sorry. And they would look at this and say, look, everybody sold all their goods and redistributed all their wealth and, and those kinds of things. Uh, the problem with socialism, or, or even uh, some look at this said communism, the problem is this. In those systems, the elite get to choose who gets what. And some would even argue and say, well, look, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And they distributed the wealth as they saw fit. So they would make the case that uh, here's the problem with all of that argument where it all falls apart. All right? Uh, Communism is about control and power. Acts chapter 4 is about generosity and living for Jesus. Now let me offer up two quick points here. Number one, first, uh, the book of Acts is a historical book in the genre of Scripture. The Gospels and Acts are historical books. And so what does that mean? What that means is this, is that many of the times what we read in the Gospels and certainly early in the book of Acts, uh, it is descriptive in nature and not always prescriptive for how the church should be living today. We find most of the prescriptive teaching in the epistles. And so we see that early here uh, in the book of Acts. And so what, what do we dis discern from that? He's simply describing the response of the early church, not prescribing uh, what should be happening still today. Uh, let me give you another example about prescriptive versus descriptive. Nobody today should gather themselves in a room with other Christians who don't speak the language and pray that the Holy Spirit would come down all like cloven tongues of fire so they would all speak in tongues again, right? Totally descriptive, not prescriptive. And so we see that here as well. Secondly, here's what I want you to understand. Socialism is about pulling resources out of people's hands forcefully. What we see in Acts chapter 4 is people giving generously and willingly. What they're saying is, hey, we've been so radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that whatever possessions we have, we're going to hold on to them loosely because following Christ calls us to live open-handedly for however God moves on our hearts. They're totally abandoned to Jesus and the mission of Jesus Christ. And listen, if you and I are going to be as well, what is prescriptive as this, is that you and I would live open-handedly as it relates to our possessions. Say, Lord, all this belongs to you. It's all your resources. Everything comes from you. How do you want me to serve you through these resources? One of my favorite quotes on generosity of the early church comes from pastor and author Tim Keller. Here's what he said. This is fascinating. He said the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everyone their money. He says it was totally countercultural. People could not reconcile what was going on. So the end of Acts chapter 4, there's not a single needy person among them. They just said, hey, Lord, this is all yours. We've been radically changed by the gospel. We're not going to live like this with our possessions. We're going to live, Lord, as you prompt us. We're going to be generous. And this is what it looked like descriptively because of that. They voluntarily laid their gifts at the apostles' feet. It was not a forced act. They wanted to give. And here's my experience. In 20 years of pastoring, People who have been overwhelmed by the radical generosity of God and lavishing His grace on us, guess what? Those people, they want to give as well. 
Acts chapter 4 is descriptive, but the concept of radical generosity is actually prescriptive. Here's why. All throughout the New Testament, God's plan has always been to carry out God's mission to come from the generosity of God's people. Now, here's the practical reality of all that fleshing out, though. For most people to move from a life of of nominal generosity or those kind of things into this radical abandonment to God, Lord, whatever I have is yours, and I want to serve you with whatever resource you've given me. For most people to move from nominal generosity to radical generosity, like we've seen displayed here, it's not a step, it's a leap. And because it's a leap, they just say, I can't do it, and therefore I'm not going to participate. Now, when we talk about generous giving, we think of it the same way we think about any other spiritual discipline. So, so here's, I want to help you understand this. If I said, hey, how long have you been a Christian? You said, I've been a Christian for 30 years. And I ask you, I said, are you still, are you still praying at the same love you was when you first got? No, I've grown in my prayer life. Well, that's, that's normal, right? If I said, hey, are you still studying and your knowledge of God's word? No, 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 I've grown so much and my appetite's grown. That's normal, right? So when it comes to giving, guess what? We just treat like every spiritual discipline, right? Progressive sanctification. I'm growing uh, in my maturity and therefore I'm growing in my generosity. And so towards that end, we've kind of uh, created a little practical tool that we use in our membership class and some other class we teach uh, called the generosity journey. And so let me just uh, show you this little diagram up here. So, so here's the reality. Everybody in the room, me included, are somewhere on the generosity journey. And so some folks are non-givers. They're, they're not participating at all. Some folks are occasional givers, Right, if the offering plate comes by and i got a couple bucks or i got money left over at the end of the month, those kind of things. Uh, some people are consistent givers. They may give a percentage. I give every week or it's 2% or 5% or whatever the case is. Some people are tithers. Some people are extravagant givers. And so everybody is there this morning on one of those places. And the reality is everybody has a chance to take a step forward no matter where you are to grow in the journey of generosity, to move towards an Acts chapter 4 vision of generosity. We say, hey, I'm totally abandoned to the mission of Jesus Christ. Totally abandoned to that. And our personal uh, generosity journey, I'm going to ask you to do something that we're not willing to ourselves right now. Where we're at uh, is we're investing about 13% of our gross income into the Lord's work, and we're trying to grow in that. We're trying to grow uh, in that. And our desire is to grow in our knowledge of Scripture. We want to grow in prayer. We want to grow in boldness. We want to grow in our generosity like every other spiritual discipline. But let me explain something. The percentage, and this is going to sound, if you've been in church a long time, like, mm, I don't know about that. The percentage is not the most important thing on a heart level when it comes to heart affections or heart motives. And if you've been taught a percentage over and over, you you just got to wrestle through that. And so here's why. So many times I've had people ask me this question. Hey, we're not under the law. We're under grace. So do I have to tithe? I've been asked that question a time or 200 in the last 20 years, right? And here's what I tell people. Number one, you're you're under grace. You don't have to do anything. right? You you can do whatever you want under grace. You're not under the law. Uh, Number two, what they're really asking is this. How little can I give and still keep God happy, right? When you start angling and wrestling with percentages, well, that's old, that's a, listen, what they're really asking is how little can I give and still keep God happy? Now, what's being contrasted in Acts chapter four and the question that every extravagant giver should ask is this, God, it's all yours. How much do you want me to keep? It's all yours, so, so how are American Christians doing in this 
This extravagant idea of a totally abandoned Jesus, it's all his, how much do you want me to keep? Here's a real statistic that's recent. The average American Christian gives 2.8% of their income to kingdom causes every single year. 2.8%. Now, how, how do we reconcile that? Now, here's something we believe we teach over and over. Every habit, outer man action you have, including giving, is simply the overflow of an inner heart affection. Right, so you can give the right amount, whatever percentage you think that is. You can give the right amount. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm in the Old Testament. I'll give it 23%, right? You can give the right amount with a wrong heart motive, and it still not be Christ-honoring. And so what are some things on the inside that we wrestle with from a heart affection when it comes to extravagant uh, type of giving? Uh, just a couple things I jotted down here. Uh, number one, uh, we've gotten caught up in greed and materialism. Like at the end of the day, I, I can't do the things I want to do and have the experience I want to have and travel where I want to have, have and have my kids do all the things I think they should deserve to do and still give uh, generously. Here's what's interesting. The Bible speaks more about greed than it does sexual immorality, but yet no one thinks they're guilty of greed. Have you noticed that? I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never had anybody say, uh, I'm a greedy person. No one thinks they're guilty, but the Bible speaks more about greed than it does about sexual immorality. So some people just got, greed has gripped our hearts. That's easy to do in America, right? Uh, Number two, we don't see the Lord as the owner of our possessions and ourselves as the managers. Right in Acts chapter four, they're saying, hey, this all belongs to you. We're just managers. You tell us what you want us to do with your resources and we'll do it. We're totally abandoned to the mission. So some people have yet to settle the ownership question. Uh, Number three, we believe that our financial position and not the Lord is our source of security. Well, if I give away some of my money, I won't be as financially secure. Uh, let, let me just tell you this. If your hope and your security is in your bank statement, you're not financially secure already. Our security is in the Lord's provision, in his ability to sustain us. Now, I'm going to let you know a little secret. I don't know if you know this or not. Preachers get a bad rap when it comes to preaching on money. Did, did, did you know that? Are you aware of that? And so why are we talking about giving today? Because nobody likes it. I mean, here's why we're talking about giving today. Because that's the topic at hand at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. <laughs> we're just preaching chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And so whatever's coming up, right, we have a saying right here, we don't teach around tough verses, we teach through them. And so whatever subject is coming up in the text, that's what we're teaching on. So unless you question our motives, let me just let you know a little secret. We're on pace with all of our campus cumulative giving. We're gonna, our giving's going to go over budget for the 11th year in a row. We're fine. So there's not a motive here. There's not a, you know, uh, I don't get a percentage bonus. Like, hey, it went over 10%. That's all yours. Praise God. Although that's not a bad idea. I just want to share that. I just want to. <laughs> and so let me just be as clear as I can. Okay. I want you to give as much as you possibly can. I'm not even apologizing for that. I'm not even apologizing. And here's why. Because the Bible teaches that our heart follows our money, not the other way around. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is he teaching? He's saying your heart follows your money, not the other way around. And so I want you to give generously and extravagantly, not so we can have a huge budget. Here's why. Because I want God to have all of your heart. I don't want there to be any area of your life that's not surrendered to the lordship of 
Jesus Christ. I want the heart affection of every person who goes to Liberty Heights Church that's total abandonment to Jesus and his mission. And so, Lord, whatever I have, whatever I have, if you can use it for your kingdom good, even my resources, Lord, it's all yours, and I'm totally devoted to you. That's what I want. And if you don't think that motives matter, the author of Acts launches into a sobering comparison at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 that proves that motives are more important than the amount in our giving. At the end of chapter 4, we're introduced to a guy named Barnabas, and he sold a field that he owned. And he gave all the proceeds away, not under compulsion because he had to, he wanted to. And then uh, after that, in chapter 5, we meet a greedy couple named Ananias and Sapphira whose motives are deceptive. And so they, too, had a piece of property. And they sold it, and they said, hey, we're going to give it all away. But then they kept back some of the proceeds. And they told everyone, we're going to give all the proceeds. But they kept back a little bit for a rainy day, right? Just, just a little bit. And look at Acts chapter 5, in verse 3, what Peter says to Ananias in verse 3. Ananias. Why has Satan filled your, here's the word, heart? Why have you let Satan to take over your motives? That's what he's asking. Filled your heart and lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. What's he, what's he getting on him for? It's, it's not the amount, like, hey, we got bills to pay. And where's the rest of the money? He doesn't ask that, right? It's a heart issue. It's an issue of motives, and listen, Ananias wasn't just lying to, to the apostles and some of his friends. Listen, ultimately, he's lying against God because sin is always against God first and others. That's why he says, why are you lying ultimately to the Holy Spirit? Now, what happens next is shocking. What happens next? Ananias drops dead. Boom! Now, as a little side note, I'm considering it God's providential mercy that the Sunday we're collecting our missions offering we happen to be the one chapter in the Bible where God killed someone for lying about his offering. Amen? <laughs> but in all seriousness, listen, the issue was not about the amount. The issue was with their motives. They had a heart issue. We could teach an entire sermon on this, but let me just expose a few heart motives when it comes to living radically generous. Right, what are some of the heart motives that we might struggle with? Uh, so I just wrote down several. Uh, sometimes it's recognition. Let me tell you something. As long as I'm the pastor here, right, and I'm just the interim pastor. Could be 12 years, could be 30 years, could be 40 years. That makes you excited. Let me remind you, you're just interim members, all right? So settle down. We will never, we will never put up plaques and name buildings and halls and those kinds of things for recognition of someone else other than Jesus Christ. Never. Some people give out of recognition. Uh, some people give out of control. Well, I'll give to the church, but, but I, but I want to say so in how that money's used. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, well, I want to say so because I give, so therefore I'm a shareholder. Can, can I just tell you this? If that's your motive for giving, number one, just stop giving. Because number two, you're not giving, you're trading money for control. That's trading, not giving. So that's a bad Motive, sometimes three, uh, buying a blessing, like I'll give generously so as long as God blesses my life, that's prosperity gospel kind of stuff. Sometimes reluctancy or compulsion. Let me just say this openly. If you're on our administrative team, just shut your ears, all right? Let me just say this openly. If you don't want to give and you're giving, stop giving. 
Because your gift isn't honoring the Lord. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what does that mean? I could be giving the right amount out of compulsion or guilt, and no matter what the percentage is, it doesn't honor the Lord. Because my heart's not motivated by that. And so what do we do? We just say, Lord, work on my heart. This is, this is the prayer for everybody in your generosity journey, no matter where you are. If you want to grow in that, like every other your, your spiritual life, you should say, Lord, work on my heart where it is totally abandoned to your mission. It is totally abandoned to your mission. That's where all of us should be striving towards. And so obedience will cost you control of your possessions. And then secondly, you're like, man, get off that. Uh, this is a harder topic. Secondly, obedience may cost you your freedom. Picking up the narrative, people are going crazy at all of these works that are being done by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. In fact, it says people would line the streets with their sick friends so the hope that as the shadows of the apostles would pass by them, they would be healed just by being in their shadows. But all this commotion is making the Jewish leaders nervous. Right, the Sanhedrin doesn't like things to get outside of control, and so they arrest them and they throw them in the jail. And the Holy Spirit lets them out of the jail in the middle of the night, and the next morning the Jewish Sanhedrin shows up at the temple, and there's Peter and John once again preaching in the temple courts. The Holy Spirit springs them out of jail. Now listen, I'm just being honest, that's me. I'm heading for the hills, right? Let's not do that again. They do the exact opposite. They go right back to what they're doing yesterday, and so they're arrested again. Acts chapter 5, look down at verse 40. It says, when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, there's no slowing down, Every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the mission literally cost them their personal freedom. Now, I'm going to let you in a little secret here this morning. I'm, I'm dropping all kinds of wisdom nuggets, all right? This issue of personal freedom is a hot topic in culture conversation. Are you aware of that? I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Freedom to choose gender. Freedom to choose medical decisions, freedom to express your view in whatever form that you choose is a hot topic. And so because it's a hot topic, let me say something very slowly so that you hear me clearly this morning, all right? There is a difference between freedoms granted by men in the Constitution and freedoms granted by God in the Bible. And I think there's some confusion on this. And so let me offer what I hope will be uh, some wisdom to more biblically, faithfully discern those issues. Uh, number one, God-given freedoms are spelled out in the Bible. Clearly spelled out in the Bible. Freedoms granted by men are spelled out in the Constitution in our laws. Freedoms granted by God are available to Christians all over the world. God does not have a special covenant with America like he did Israel. That's Christian nationalism. God's covenant is with the church of Jesus Christ, and the church of Jesus Christ is global, praise God. 
And so our Constitution grants us some civil freedoms, but that's not the same as a God-given right. And I'm well aware that parts of the Constitution are based on the Bible, but they're not the Bible. I'm well aware of all that argument. As a matter of fact, let me just lean in a little bit here, all right? Because here's my heart. I want us to be biblically faithful, and I hope that's what you want. When we begin to wrestle with this idea of freedom, the biblical language is actually just the opposite. You say, what do you mean by that? The Bible says that before we come to Christ, we are slaves to sin. The Bible says that after we come to Christ, we're slaves to Christ, that we've been bought with a price. That's straight from Scripture. Slave to sin before I knew Jesus, slave to Christ after I knew Jesus. Now, let me ask you a, a simple question. How much freedom does a slave have? And so here's the reality. You and I are not free in Christ to do whatever we want. We're free to obey him. Let me give you some illustrations. Under constitutional freedom, you have a right to free speech. You can say and do whatever you want. But under biblical language, if you're a follower of Christ, the Bible says this in Ephesians 4, you're to let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. You're not free to say whatever you want as a Christian. You're free to only represent Christ with your words. That's straight from the Bible. It's a civil right to have an abortion. But Scripture defines life as being a conception, so the Bible says it's murder. You have a civil right to keep all of your money for yourself in capitalism. But Scripture says whoever turns a blind eye to the poor hates his maker. Do you see the difference between rights we have, praise God, that we should be thankful for, thankful for the sacrifice of those, we should defend those, not against any of that stuff. But if you're not careful, you're going to confuse the difference between what Scripture says about freedom and what freedom is from the Constitution. And here's my greatest fear in this culture moment that we're going on. My greatest fear in the conversation about freedom is, number one, we're not being faithful to Scripture. That's always my greatest fear in any subject, by the way, in case you don't know that. Number two, my greatest fear also is that a personal freedom can become an idol. Is it a good thing? Yes. What's idols? They're good things that become God things. Now, do I want to give up my freedom, specifically my religious freedom? Absolutely not. Am I deeply grateful for those who have purchased our freedom with their sacrifice? Absolutely. Should we stand up, show up, speak up, and vote up to protect those freedoms? Absolutely. It's part of being salt and light in a democratic culture. But here's how we know that something has become an idol. And this, this is true of anything. Pick a topic. When I want to punish someone who stands in the way of me having it. From James Book of James, chapter 4, here's how the progression of an idol goes. I have a desire that grows into a demand. And then I judge you as not being willing to meet my demand. And once I make my judgment against you, I have a desire to punish you to the point you're no longer an enemy and I can no longer, or you are an enemy and I can no longer even love my enemies. That's idolatry. And I'm not talking here about the idea of defending civil freedoms via the military and the government. That's the biblical purpose of government, according to Romans chapter 13, to wield the sword and put down injustice, praise God. But sometimes if we're not careful, it can get to punitively punishing someone that threatens my idol of ultimate individual freedom to the point where even that freedom extends beyond the bounds of what the Bible says, I'm constrained as a slave to Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm challenging with this morning. 
unapologetically, that our citizenship in heaven as followers of Jesus Christ should carry more weight than our citizenship of any country. That's straight from the Bible. No Christian should think that's controversial. That's straight from Scripture. And so we become so focused on rights and our freedoms and our opinions that there's little room left in our lives to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. Here's a simple statistic. We have the greatest religious freedoms in the world and probably all of world history, and praise God, I'm grateful to God for it. I don't want to lose it. But despite having all this freedom to speak up for Jesus, America is one of the places where Christianity is declining the fastest. And so what that indicates is this, is that if we're not careful, we like the comfort of freedom more than the freedom to speak up about Jesus. That's what I'm against. Let's use our freedom to speak up clearly about Jesus Christ. You say, what if it comes to the place where that's no longer a viable option? Then hear me clearly this morning. We choose civil disobedience. That's what we do. We speak up about Jesus at the risk of being fined or imprisoned or all those kinds of things. Why? Because there's nothing that should ever stop us from speaking up clearly about Jesus Christ. Period. And so the reality is, how do, how do we wrestle through all of these things? Listen, above everything, above my resources, I want the gospel to advance. Above something as costly as my own personal freedom, I want the gospel to advance. And let me just make a confession this morning. Honest to God, I'm just, this is the truth to me. Our pastors talked about this week. I'm just being honest with you. Losing my personal freedoms and my religious freedom causes me more anxiety than the thought of someone not hearing about Jesus. It, I'm just being honest. And I've confessed that, and I'm ashamed of that. And I'm asking the Lord to grow my heart in that. But when I hear those conversations going on in culture, if I heard this morning say, hey, all of your religious liberties being stripped away, I'm thinking, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. That's what we do. That's what I built my whole life on. It causes me great anxiety and even fear if I'm not careful. But when I hear about a new unreached people group, I don't think of, I'm free to speak to Jesus and free to get the gospel of them. I'm not as burdened about that as I should be. I'm just being honest. I'm asking the Lord to grow my heart in that. And so, at the end of chapter 5, a Pharisee named Gamaliel says this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Here's what he says. He says, hey, everyone settle down. If these men are not from God, th th this will fade out. There have been other people who've claimed to be the Messiah. And so, if, if he's not, this whole thing will fade out. Just settle down. And this is what he says in chapter 5. But if it does not, and this Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you are opposing God himself. And so here's the question we all got to wrestle with, me included. Why would the apostles give up their possessions and their freedoms to keep the movement moving forward? Here's why. Because they had witnessed God raise Jesus from the dead. And if you've encountered the resurrected Savior as your personal Lord and Savior, there should be nothing that you would not be willing to lay on the altar to say, Lord, whatever it is, my possessions, my personal freedom, listen, fill in the blank, anything in between that I hold with deep value, I'm willing to surrender any of those things if it means the gospel may go forth. It's exactly what they're modeling here. 
And so why would they do that? Because they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. You look back to the history of every religion, every leader of every single religious movement has died. You can visit their graves. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Gandhi is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. The list goes on and you can visit the graves. But the movement that started in Acts chapter 1 will never die because our leader and Savior, Jesus Christ, is alive and reigning well this morning and inviting us to join him on his mission. And they believe that. And they said, because that is true, listen, here's my money. If it gets the gospel to go forward, it's yours. Here's my own freedom. Listen, if it gets the gospel to go forward, you have to throw me into prison for preaching Christ. It's all yours. Whatever I have, whatever resource you've given me, Lord, they're all yours. At great personal cost. Why? Because they had seen Jesus. That's why. It's a church challenging message, challenging for me this week. But can I just tell you this, whatever we sacrifice for Jesus, whatever it costs us, hear me this morning, he's worth it. He's worth it. And so let's not spend our lives and our greatest passions holding tightly to things that won't last. Let's aim everything, everything at heaven because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you a very hard question. I had to ask myself this week and I didn't didn't care for the answer. Is there anything in your life that if you were called to give it up would give you greater anxiety than the gospel not going forward? For some of you, that may be your money, your possessions. Some of you may be the right to speak up and say whatever you want in any form that you want. For some of you, it may be your reputation. Is there anything in your life that the thought of giving it up gives you greater anxiety than the thought of the gospel not going forward? And so right now, would you just tell the Lord, this is where your heart is. Would you just tell the Lord, Lord, the the song is true. I surrender all this morning. God, God, whatever you want to take from my life, my freedom, my money, my reputation, my comfort, whatever you want to take from my life, Lord, if it's stopping the gospel from going forward, Lord, remove it from my life. Would you pray that scary prayer right now? God, if there's anything in my life that's stopping the gospel from going forward, Would you just remove that from my life? As painful as that may be, as scary as it is to pray that, would you just pray that right now and say, Lord, I'm living open-handed. Everything I have, everything I have belongs to you. Help me to trust you. Father, I pray this morning that 
you would break our hearts. God, while we're grateful for our freedoms we enjoy, while we're grateful for the resources you've entrusted us with, God, you would break our hearts that anything in our life might hinder the work of the gospel. And so, Lord, whatever it is in my life, reveal that to me. Whatever it is in our lives collectively, God, reveal that to us. And God, may we live with total abandonment to Jesus Christ, willing to risk persecution, willing to risk a loss of possessions, willing to risk anything so the gospel may go forward. Total abandonment to Jesus Christ, even at a cost to ourselves. And so, Lord, strengthen us for whatever that looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.